What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. May I have the password, please? Fidelio. That's right, sir. That is the password for admittance. But may I ask, what is the password for the house? If you're not picturing a lot of creepy masks as you listen to that scene, then maybe it's been a while since you've seen Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's final provocative masterpiece. On this week's show, we take another look at Kubrick's film, part of our 9 from 99 series, celebrating the 20th anniversary of that great movie year. We'll also talk about our favorite Kubrick scenes and share a little listener feedback about It Chapter 2. All that and more. If you critics only knew. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We were all set to pair this week's 9 from 99 review of Eyes Wide Shut with a top five Kubrick scenes we did back in 2013. So producer Sam, he goes back to listen to it, sees what's on the tape, and discovers that I'm not actually on that episode. I had totally forgotten that myself. <laughs> I lost my voice mm-hmm. like the night before or the morning of recording. I had done all my prep. I had all my 2001 notes together. Even though I was intimidated by that film, as anyone would be, I was ready to go. I had my top five Kubrick scenes ready to go. Lost my voice and had to sit there and kind of play studio producer while you and Michael had all the fun. I think it was closer than that because you were there. Actually, you were sitting there. I think you had come in and we're going to try to give it a go. And the voice just wasn't there for you. Hal, somebody had somebody gotten to you. Exactly. So that was just you and Michael. I did get to share some of my 2001 thoughts the following week when my voice returned, but I never did actually get into those top five Kubrick scenes. So we won't get into an extended top five segment, but we will revisit your picks, Michael Phillips picks. And my choices as well. Plus, we'll share a little bit of listener feedback. We did get some great picks sent to us, as always. But first, I don't know about you, Adam, but I had a heck of a time finding a hooded cloak for this 9 from 99 review. I'll tell you what I do know is you got a little stone tonight. You've been trying to pick a fight with me, and now you're trying to make me jealous. You've never been jealous about me, have you? No, I haven't. And why haven't you ever been jealous about me? Well, I don't know, Alice. Maybe because you're my wife, and I know you would never be unfaithful to me. You are very, very sure of yourself, aren't you? No. I'm sure of you. (laughs) Do you think that's funny? I really don't bring this up to rub it in, Adam, but when I was hanging out with our now mutual friends, Jason Eakin and Brett Merriman Uh at the Film Spotting LA meetup this summer, one of the things we debated was the supposed misanthropy of Stanley Kubrick's films. Neither of them quite buy my theory that his movies mostly despise people and that the giant space baby at the end of 2001 is coming to gobble us all. 
I honestly don't remember if Eyes Wide Shut, the latest film in our 9 from 99 series, came up in the discussion that night. We'd moved on from the brewery at that point to a nearby Mexican spot. Now, Eyes Wide Shut is probably the Kubrick film best poised to puncture a hole in my argument. Here's a movie that I found back in 1999 and upon this rewatch to be, yes, clear-eyed about the depravity of humankind, but also brazenly positive about people and, dare I say, even a bit mushy. Eyes Wide Shut is adapted by Kubrick and Frederick Raphael from Arthur Schnitzler's 1926 novella, Tromneval, which they updated to contemporary New York City. Then-married co-stars Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman play an affluent couple and parents of a young girl whose marriage changes course during one woozy, late-night pot-smoking session. Basically told by Bill, her husband, that women don't have the instinct for infidelity, Kidman's Alice launches into a searing confession about a near affair she had with a naval officer the summer before on a family vacation. Kidman's monologue, by the way, my number two Stanley Kubrick scene. Smart pick. Can't wait to hear what yours are, Adam. Alice's eye-opening tale sends Bill on a strange odyssey through the New York night, where he dabbles with various opportunities to enact some sort of sexual revenge, including at the secret, high-society sex ritual he sneaks into that the movie has become notorious for. Now, a lot of this is nasty, ugly stuff, and certainly in line with a misanthropic reading of Kubrick's work. It was also a turnoff to many critics at the time. Eyes Wide Shut only got mildly favorable reviews, and it did earn some notable pans, including David Edelstein's for Slate, which producer Sam Van Hogren referenced in this week's Film Spotting newsletter. Kubrick himself, it's worth noting, died shortly before the film's release and didn't get to see its reception. And yet, if you stick with the picture... If you make it through the masked orgy to the moment when Bill drops his mask in response to Alice dropping hers, you'll find, as I put it in 1999, possibly the most moral movie ever to show this much skin. I think it portrays marriage as something difficult, yes, but also sensual and ultimately precious. Seeing Eyes Wide Shut in 1999 after I'd been married for four years, I found that interesting, encouraging. Watching it again in 2019, after 24 years of marriage, Mm. it nearly wrecked me. Mm. I honestly let out a teary guffaw at Kidman's perfect final line. This struck me as devastatingly romantic. So, Adam, am I wrong, which means maybe Jason and Brett might be right about Kubrick? Or did you, too, find this odd sex odyssey from one of our, quote-unquote, coldest auteurs to be a work of real tenderness, passion, and compassion? I would love nothing more than to tell you that you're wrong. But in this case, you are dead on. And I love starting with this because it gets right at the heart of what I, too, appreciate so much about this movie. And I suppose the answer could depend on one's definition of romantic. But the counter to your take is pretty simple. This is a movie about a married couple who don't share a ton of screen time when they're together. Most of the wife's dialogue, Alice, as you said, played by Kidman, concerns fantasies about cheating with other men. In one instance, so many men she can't count and ultimately trying to humiliate her husband. When they aren't together, the husband is trying to actually cheat with other women. He's consistently thwarted, but he's trying. So sure, Josh, that sounds really romantic. Here's here's the, the proof that you're right, though, is this. This is a movie about a married couple who, despite those fantasies and thwarted attempts, is in a much healthier, honest place than they were before. I think the key expression of that sentiment comes in Alice's lines near the end of the film when she says, the important thing is we're awake now. And hopefully 
for a long time to come. And this, of course, tying back into the title of the movie. If you set aside for now all the talk of dreams and the undeniable dreamlike nature of really the entire movie, and I'm sure we will talk about that a bit. There's this kind of suggestion of sleepwalking in their marriage right from the very beginning. Of course, we get that incredible opening shot of Kidman naked as her dress falls. She's facing away from the camera and she's just a stunning, sensual figure, statuesque in her pose. And then we go from that a little bit of a credit break into the scene of them getting ready. And it's a very familiar conversation probably to most of us married people. Honey, have you seen my wallet? Isn't it on the bedside table? He kind of groans when he finds that, of course, she's right. And that's exactly where he left it. He points out that we're running a little bit late. She says, I know. And she says, how do I look? And he (laughs) says, perfect. Is my hair okay? It's great. And before she even says it, we're all aware as viewers, he's not even looking at her Mm -hmm. when he says it. He's really not paying attention at all. She then calls him on it. You're not even looking at it. He says, it's beautiful. You always look beautiful doesn't carry that much weight. He might mean it, but in that moment, it doesn't really carry that much weight. There's very little real connection there, I think, between them, which isn't to say there's a wide chasm or that there's a total lack of love, not at all, but we do see them going through the everyday motions of a marriage. We see it too, I think, in Alice's looking into the mirror during a lovemaking scene after the party. And by the end, Josh, they've awakened to a couple things. The reality of relationships, of life, their fragility, and as she says, the gratitude they should probably feel that they didn't feel before, and seeing each other as they really are. No more facades, no more masks, and specifically seeing each other as individual sexual beings. Mm -hmm. That's the key, I think. This is territory that is certainly more fraught psychologically and emotionally. It's a little more dangerous, if you will, but it's also way more exciting and stimulating and What's romance, if not something that should be exciting and stimulating, Josh? Yeah, it's romantic because it's a revival. I think that's why I find it that way. The other line she has in that final conversation, you mentioned it, to be grateful. She says, maybe we should be grateful, grateful that we've managed to survive. And there's a key word as well, survive through all our adventures, whether they were real or only a dream. And so there's an honesty there. Um, In a way, you get the sense they are in the most honest place, still a pretty terrible place. I mean, they've got a lot to sort out. Uh, It's not like they're going to walk out of that toy store where they're Christmas shopping with their daughter in this final scene, and everything's going to be Mm -hmm. hunky-dory. There's going to be a lot of rough roads ahead, but you feel like this is probably the most honest place they've ever been with each other. They're on their way to a more fulfilling path. Yeah, and I I find that I find that romantic. I agree with you. um, But it is – it's the sort of experience where there are a little dollops of this in a movie that is otherwise extremely – depressing in all the ways that you described, watching them apart. Um, I do wish there had been more Kidman in this because Mm -hmm. not only because she just takes such control of those scenes she has, which are essentially monologues, um, but because we kind of get stuck with Cruz for a long time, who is good as well, but it is weighted far more towards him. And so, yeah, I maybe could have used a little bit more of her, but there are other romantic elements in this that the mirror scene you mentioned at the beginning to Chris Isaac's baby did a bad, bad thing, Mm -hmm. um, maybe more sensual than romantic, but at least captures a fire that they do have of some sort mixed with a lot of other stuff going on. I think that look, that look betrays something to me that isn't. So let's get to the performances because Kidman's looks in this film, what she gives 
the camera with her face. She's always two and usually three mental places at once. And I think that mirror scene is the quintessential one for that. We see that part of it is an attraction and connection with her husband. Part of it is thinking about what happened at the party they just came from, the cocktail party, um, where she was propositioned and she's also suspicious of what he might have been doing. So that's at play. You also see her seeming to consider all of those things at once and asking herself, who am I? Who am Mm -hmm. I looking at right now? And who are we together? Kidman gives such a psychologically layered performance here. And again, with maybe a third of the scenes that Cruz has and just makes those so potent, so powerful that they do in the end, for me, outweigh the miserableism that we see Cruz's character mostly wading through. Yeah. I'm guessing that after this mention, you're not going to hear a couple things the rest of this review. The word Illuminati, (laughs) Epstein, if you want to go down any conspiracy theory kind of rabbit holes, leave it to Reddit, probably not going to be. I have no notes on this stuff. No, which isn't to say I will point out that systems of power and the exploitation of the powerless, especially women by elites, isn't on the mind of this movie. It absolutely is. I think and I'm guessing you agree it serves the marriage aspect of the film and not vice versa, you're probably not going to hear us get into how this is supposedly the longest continuous film shoot ever in the Guinness Book of World Records over 400 days, or going back to what you were talking about with Kidman, Cruz and Kidman's marriage and the perception of it and how that might have affected the filming of this movie and our perception of it as audiences, either in 99 or now 20 years later. If you want to get into that stuff, there's lots of articles and videos about it. Amy Nicholson, five years ago on its 15th anniversary, did a really good piece in Vanity Fair that's all about that, and we will link to it in our show notes. Well, can I say one thing about the celebrity aspect of it? Um, Just because that was a different experience this time around for me. That was very much top of mind in 99, as it had to be for everyone. And you think about, okay, Kubrick, you read about his methods of filmmaking. Is he playing some mm-hmm. sort of psychological game with his cast here? Because um, he he wouldn't do it just for a stunt, right? So what are the why do this? And even though it was effective, and I love the film then, I did have that hanging over my processing of the movie. This time, knowing you know where their history has gone, and yes. we're just so far removed from all of that. Let setting that aside made me really able to connect with them as fictional characters much more. Yeah. And, and I think that was very much to the movies, to my viewing experience's advantage this time around. Yeah, I agree completely with that. And it occurs to me as you say that it might be a little bit like the Blair Witch Project. We talked about that, how some of us went in anyway, still having that in the back of our minds. Wait, is this supposed to be the real or if it's not completely yeah. real? Are there elements that are? There was some mystery shrouding it. And similarly, in 99, we watched Eyes Wide Shut and thought, okay, this is clearly a movie. It's clearly artifice. They are playing characters. But what did Kubrick get out of them? Right. What did he mine yeah. in their actual relationship? And what elements of their real relationship and any issues there, what's actually coming through on screen? That's there. And you're right. Now we feel more disconnected from that. And it wasn't something that influenced my viewing so much. But I want to talk about the performances, I suppose, in particular, Cruz here, because I think you're exactly correct about Kidman and her performance. And if we were going to redo those Kubrick scenes, having now seen Eyes Wide Shut again, I probably would have tried to fit that exact scene on that monologue for me is the is the crux of the entire film. And I love her delivery of it. I think she's off a little bit. There's a sequence later, that dream sequence where she's coming out of a dream Mm. and she goes on another long explanation that 
doesn't ever feel quite right to me. In fact, I don't really like anything about that scene. It's huh. a little bit too on the nose and it's Garden of Eden symbolism, I felt, that Kubrick was going for there. And she somehow just wasn't as grounded as she is in that scene where the camera is just trained on her and we get those glimpses. We get those cuts to cruise and those close-ups, which I also love. Yes. I think we get in those scenes and we get That's- it in the taxi cab too, a little bit of that Kubrick glare that he's famous for. It's that kind of almost looking down face Mm -hmm. that you only get from Kubrick emphasized that way that suggests something more than just sorrow or just basic sadness, something like true existential despair. Mm -hmm. And I think you get it from Cruz. I certainly felt it there in that bedroom scene. So I think Kidman and Cruz are both great in that scene and very good in this whole film. But Amy Nicholson in that Vanity Fair article said something interesting about Cruz's performance that she felt like it feels flat. She says Cruz's blankness makes Eyes Wide Shut take on an element of kabuki theater, the art form where emotional perception, not projection, is key. The whole film feels like an exercise in theatricality, as though Dr. Bill is not a person but a prop. This isn't a movie about a human possessed with distrust and jealousy. It's a movie about distrust and jealousy that simply uses a human as its conduit. With Cruz hidden in a mask and robe, the intention is to hide his individuality in the service of a larger ritualistic machine. And she pointed out that critics then did kind of pan the performance. It was like, oh, he's the action movie star. And yes, he done born on the 4th of July, but he's out of his league here mm-hmm. somehow. And now, again, separated from that by 20 years and looking over the expanse of Cruz's career, I don't feel that way at all about this performance. I understand what she's saying about the flatness and mm-hmm. how it does ultimately serve the story. And it gets to the question that all of us as critics or viewers have about performances in films when they work or don't work. Who gets the credit? How much credit does the director get? How much of it is the actor and the choices they're specifically making with Kubrick on this film, knowing what we do know about his approach? I don't see how you can't give the lion's share of the credit or discredit, I would say, if that's what you perceive. To Kubrick, because you know he shot 95 to 150 takes of every one of these scenes Mm -hmm. and tried to get exactly what he wanted out of those sequences. And how many takes that Cruz loved or that we would love did he leave on the cutting room floor? He wanted something that suggested more detachment, that flatness, perhaps. It's clearly all filling into this overall dreamlike state of this film. and. You can get on that wavelength or not, I suppose. This is what's going on with Cruz. And and you're right. Edelstein really went after him in that slate takedown. He mostly aimed at Cruz and his supposed flatness. But what I think is going on is that Kubrick cast him for perhaps, you know, the marriage element, but also for his innate enthusiasm, mm. the way that he is our most enthusiastic actor. And then what he's going to do is stifle that and force that to be drained out of him. And watching that happen Mm -hmm. gives this movie and gives the performance attention. And notice at the very beginning when they go to that cocktail party, that holiday cocktail party by Sidney Pollack's Ziegler, Ziegler. the way Cruz shakes everyone's hands. Todd Field's pianist, when he sees him again, he's pumping it up and down like it's the best thing that's ever happened to the both of them that they're meeting together. He's greeting everyone this way. And eventually, as his world starts constricting upon Mm -hmm. him or getting upended, he just gets 
tamped down more and more. But in those scenes where he's supposedly flat, you can see underneath that enthusiasm wanting to come out, that that kind of energy and sure. that rage. But he does not know what to do anymore. He's he's been completely discombobulated. Yes. And you see that cruise, it's draining away that smug cruise smile just goes further, further away. And it's all about that line Kidman gives or Alice gives to Bill in that first fight. You are very, very sure of You're yourself, very sure. aren't you? Yes. Who's very, very sure of himself? Yeah. Tom Cruise. Who's going to get taken <laughs> to the mat in this movie? That's it. Tom Cruise, the character, Bill, the character, but also Tom Cruise, the persona. And I think that is what Kubrick is going for. Now, just to I jump agree. back to what you said about Kidman and Alice, in that secondary, when she wakes up from the dream monologue, mm-hmm. what I liked about it is that I was never quite sure, and maybe this can be read as an unsteadiness in the performance, I was never quite sure what Alice was making up, Hmm. what she actually dreamt, what she was holding back from him that she did dream. And the way I read it is she is deciding as she's talking to him, how much of this dream am I going to tell him? Because you can have a dream like that and your spouse can wake you up. And mind you, when he comes into the room, she's giggling. She seems to be having a fantastic dream, but he wakes her up. And she says, oh, I was having a horrible nightmare. The conversation circles down to that yes. it is horrible. It is horrible. So maybe she's being honest and from the beginning. And he points out, but that isn't all, right? Yes. There's more to the story. And so what I like about that scene is that that unsteadiness that I think she purposefully shows us is that I don't know what I want to say here. I don't, yeah. I don't know how I'm supposed to play this. It's, right. it's her unsteadiness. We were in a deserted city. And... And our clothes were gone. We were naked. And... And I was terrified. And I... And I felt ashamed. But the first monologue is so wonderful because it holds the whole film together. It's not just the takedown of Cruz. There are hints of the love that will return. She has that one line where it's – she's confused by it, but she says in this – fantasy she was having about the naval officer mm-hmm. and just th- playing that out in her mind somehow mixed with the guilt and the thrill was the what did she say something about you were dearer to me than yeah. ever i felt closer to you something than ever like something that. like that yeah and that does not make any sense really but it also does kind of like the whole film when you when you <laughs> see where it yeah. ends so there's a hint in that little line of where they're going to get to yeah. and we're watching them both kind of struggle their way towards it. Yeah. That speech, there is a moment I love in that speech too, as well, where Kidman really shows us a lot of nuance. Because if you think about it, that entire sequence is really a rebuke to her husband. That's the whole point of it. Yes. Is to how it starts, make sure. him aware of how wrong he is. Naive. About his perception of women, mm-hmm. about his perception of her, about the way he does or doesn't view her as her own individual sexual being. And it's a takedown of that. And yet, At the moment, 
when that takedown reaches its potential apex, the line where she says, I was willing to give up everything for him. Mm -hmm. When she hits everything, it's not a moment of contempt or real scorn. In fact, that's the first moment building up to it that she shows real emotion and she kind of breaks down. It actually becomes a moment where she recognizes that she's saying something incredibly hurtful and what's ultimately proving her point to him. But the reality of that in the moment does break her heart a little mm -hmm. bit. You see that in the performance. The most cruise moment in the film, I think, and it perfectly encapsulates everything you said as far as that charismatic, overly smiley, busy cruise trying to come through. It's at war with this absolutely destroyed cruise. And who knows where this scene exactly fell in the process of shooting. It's about 80 to 85% through the movie itself. It's the scene where he goes back to Domino's apartment mm. and... He starts putting the moves on Sally. Is that her name? The redhead? Oh, I don't remember the redheaded the name, but Yeah, I know who you mean. And they clearly have a little bit of a connection and they're flirting. And then he starts really kind of putting the moves on her. And she slows it down and says, we need to talk. And they sit down at the table. And the whole time, he thinks she's just kind of delaying He's the still inevitable. grinning like He's a wolf. He's grinning the whole time and just kind of repeating what she's saying. Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't quite know how to say this. You don't quite know how. It's just pure cruise. But you can also see that he's doing it not because he's trying to be cool in any way, or at least if he is, it's not coming through at all. Mm -hmm. This is a guy whose world <laughs> has seen a lot over the past 24 to 36 hours, and he's not really the man he used to be at all, even though he's trying to be. We could also probably go down this rabbit hole. I don't know if you have a theory on it or not, but I kept seeing today in different comments like the Nicholson thing maybe suggested this or some other articles that it seems to just be a given to some people that this whole movie, or at least everything after that monologue, everything post that mm -hmm. confession is all a dream. Everything that's happening to yeah, Bill I thought about that. is a dream. And I have a lot of problems with that, including the fact that if that is where it starts, then where does it end? I don't understand in that scenario, if that's your argument, that the wackiness, the absurdity of everything that unfolds, and it is absurd. I think that's very much the point. It is supposed to feel like a dream. But if you're following that logic, I don't understand where where the dream ends and I suppose the reality of the movie is supposed to kick back in again. I suppose you could say that the reality kicks in at the toy store where they're, you know, reconnecting to talk about the argument they didn't finish the night before, but that doesn't quite fit either because she references to real adventures or only a dream. So there's almost an acknowledgement even there that some of their adventures were real, not just hers. She's referring to his. Yeah, I think I don't like it as well because it undoes for me everything I believe the movie is truly about, as we have been saying. It's suggesting that there is a new world that is created, basically, after that moment, after that confession, everything he believed about his marriage, in a lot of ways, everything he perceived about the world is shattered in that moment. So it makes complete sense that then when he ventures out into the world, his perception of that world is completely different. And it becomes a more artificial, false, dreamlike, yeah. heightened reality. And if you're going to go with the dream theory, then that completely undercuts 
that notion for me, I think, that that is this split or there's this, yeah. this schism that is opened up as soon as she makes that confession. And there's no real formal break. I mean, that opening cocktail party is as dreamy as anything else we see. Absolutely. And there's also immediately their argument is interrupted by a phone call. A patient has died and he has to go to that patient's home. Uh, the man has died in his bedroom. So he goes there and that is played for the most part as realistic as any yes. scene is in now, the movie. So does the way that mean that the, the daughter, dream starts after the daughter exactly. starts? The daughter comes on okay, to him me, in a way let that me ask fits you, in since with we're this, here. New, this new fantasy world that he has maybe entered or this new dreamlike world that he has entered. But you're right. Otherwise, it's grounded in a reality that some other scenes aren't. I had a question about Marion, played by Marie Richards. This daughter of the man who dies, she's in the room when Bill comes. And yeah, she starts hinting around towards him. And you're kind of thinking, what what's going on here? I love you. We barely know each other. I don't think we've had a single conversation about anything except your father. I love you. So there's two realities at play here. Uh, Did you get the impression from the film this time around that they had had an affair earlier? No. Or is this just another example of an opportunity in this heightened state presenting itself? And he's already beginning to imagine slash yes. look for these things in pursuit of some sort of revenge. Yeah. I mean, I like the former. It's interesting to think about, but the latter is where I was. And maybe at that point, he hasn't even fully started to think about it in those terms. I don't think he really has necessarily until he leaves and he goes and meets Domino because he is at first willing to kind of put her aside and try yes. to keep her away from him. But there's no doubt that it's the first key example in this new world that I'm describing where he now, based on what his wife has said, perceives women and their sexual appetites in a different yes. way. And, and so it makes sense that then every time he encounters any woman whatsoever correct. over the course of the next 24 hours, then he's going to feel the heightened effects of that. And everything is sexualized. Every street he goes down yes. has some sort of sign that's suggesting something to him. He encounters the prostitute, Vanessa Shaw, mm-hmm. right away on the street. And maybe this is where we can move into the formal. I, I think it's yes. fascinating that we have spent this much time on a Stanley Kubrick film talking about performances and not really gotten to the form. I'm ready. This has to be, though, I think that's remarkable, though. This has mm-hmm. to be his most, I don't want to say effective use of actors, but of all the films of his I've seen where acting plays as prominent a part in what the movie is trying to do. Is that fair? Maybe. Maybe. And that's not to downplay any of the other performances yeah. that have been given. I mean, great performances have been given in his yes. films. I just – it's – I can't imagine any other movie of his we would start by talking about the acting for this long. No, probably not. And as we noted, a lot of people would disagree with that or certainly did back in 99. I hate – to use the pun here, but maybe it's a perfect marriage of that form and content, or I suppose in this case, thinking about the camera and how it works around the actors and supports everything we're saying about these performances and really how it informs the psychology. I think our psychology is viewers more than anything. And with Kubrick, I think we've always studied his frames fairly carefully. I mean, we, as in anyone who watches a Kubrick film, we know to watch closely. I think I watch a little more obsessively now in a post-Room 227 world, Mm. right? That documentary that really gets into all those theories about what every single thing in the frame could possibly mean and all the symbolism of it. And so right off the bat with this film, I was doing that. I'm looking at Ziegler's party and I'm seeing that eight-pointed star Mm. that's lit up as they walk in and they're doing the handshake scene. And then 
man, we see that a few more times at his house. He seems really into that symbol. What does that mean? I promised myself I wasn't going to say Illuminati again, so I'm not going to go down that path. But I did start looking at it that way. And you start to notice, of course, it doesn't take long to realize that scene after scene, you're seeing frames populated by Christmas lights. Yes. And of course, I start thinking, well, what's the the deep meaning of the Christmas lights? And I completely dismissed it because... I said, brilliant observation, Adam. The movie takes place at Christmas. God forbid people are celebrating and recognizing Christmas. Of course that makes sense. But the closer you start to pay attention and you especially realize not only does he really continue the motif in a way that defies reality, I think. It becomes a hyper kind of reality with those Christmas lights. You also start to notice when he doesn't employ the Christmas lights. And there are some key scenes. And also then that meshes with the fact that we get in that scene – when he is at the party and while she's dancing with the Hungarian man, he's being taken away by those two models. And it's Mm -hmm. weird. It's almost like something out of the movie, the devil's advocate when Pacino's devil character is trying to tempt Keanu Reeves. And I remember he's got these, you know, these witches or these demons, if you will, who are super attractive women and they are tempting him. That's almost what it feels like because it's such a, such an, odd state. They are just ready to devour him as they're taking him away from his wife. But I'm watching that scene. What do they say when he asks where they're going? Their answer is, we're going where the rainbow ends. And then, of course, when you see the costume shop that he goes to, to go to the party, it's called Rainbow. Mm -hmm. And when they go down into the basement and that whole charade plays out, it's called under the rainbow. And you think about how those lights tie in with the primary colors of all these Christmas lights in scene after scene after scene. And for me, it does just all support this idea that there's this real world that they inhabit, but it's ultimately a fake world, right? It's adorned with these lights to suggest joy, to suggest comfort, whatever you want those Christmas lights to mean. And then there's this alternate world. It's a construct too, where this ritual is going on. This whole power system is in place. It's a construct, but it's where everyone reveals who they really are and everyone shows their true primal instincts and their primal desires. And in those scenes, of course, we don't get those primary colors. We don't get the rainbow colors and the Christmas lights in the orgy scene. We get those stark blacks and reds in that scene. And how about those confession scenes? Anytime that they're in their bedroom, It's really striking how those are lit, right? Where it's this combination of blues, icy blues. The second second one when she wakes up is all blue. In particular. But even in that first one, you see- First one's softer and almost warmer. It is warmer, but you see, for example, in shots behind him of the bathroom or the hallway, there's always this juxtaposition of a little bit of a yellow glow with this real iciness that contrasts that, which obviously- speaks to or underscores kind of what's going on with their relationship. And when it gets to the end of the film, when it gets to that moment where he's about to walk in his bedroom, right? And he sees the mask Mm -hmm. and he says, I'll tell you everything. He reveals everything, honestly, or at least we're supposed to believe he does because we don't get to hear his recount of the night. We were with him. We're going to trust that he actually does tell her the entire truth. But what does he do? The last thing before he walks into his bedroom He shuts the Christmas tree off. That's kind of that moment, right, where that this rainbow fantasy, I think, is really supposed to end. And everything we're saying about their relationship, this new reality that they're about to enter, 
it finally happens once they finally shut those lights off. Yeah. And and for him, then the final, I don't accusation, I don't know what you want to call it, but the final decision is when he does see the mask on the bed pillow next to her, mm-hmm. which gives him that moment of, do I play this for more deception? You can see there's a pause. Sure. Like, how can I get out of this? Right. What can I say? And in the face of that, he just sort of crumples. So the Christmas light thing is, I, I think you're absolutely right in that they are this pretty sheen meant to attract and deceive. And that's kind of the nice topping. How you see like this is is kind of fun to play out at that cocktail party mm-hmm. where she's flirting with the Hungarian, played, we should say, by Sky Dumont. <laughs> Great I cameo. And it's it's a little longer than a cameo, but he's so good in it. And and Bill is flirting with the two models briefly. And I think this is where w- what we gradually see is that the pretty tantalizing lights and the tempting offer from the Hungarian and the harmless flirtations with the models, they're all the first step towards other things when you get under the rainbow where all of a sudden it gets really ugly. Yes. But it's the same trajectory. And I think that's why this is actually – I don't know if you would ever call this a prudish movie, but in a lot of ways it it's – like that's why I call it a moral film. I get it. In the way it talks about um humans and sexuality. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me is how the the cinematography plays into this, the way that you're talking about. But even, you know, the cinematography in that costume shop scene is so amazing. It's possibly that's where the Christmas lights become sinister. And you have them Christmas decorations on these mannequins. And it just seems perverse. Like it doesn't make sense there. And sure enough, we find out it foreshadows what we learn about the owner's daughter played by Lily Sobieski, which I totally forgot that she was in this as a kid. Um, And all of a sudden everything curdles. It's like what the Hungarian promised. Remember their first conversation where he starts talking about the um, the romantic poet Ovid and Kidman points out, well, Ovid, you know, ended up alone and miserable. (laughs) miserable. What's his response? But he also had a good had time a first, a very good time. Yes. And the question to ask yourself about Eyes Wide Shut is, OK, let's open that door. Yeah. Let's go upstairs with this Hungarian, mm-hmm. which Cruz does for the rest of the film in his trajectory. Does anyone have a very good time? Mm. And where we end up is the basement of the costume shop. Right. Where we end up is at the masked party, which yes. is uh, it's like cadavers being resuscitated it, it is so grotesque yes and like somehow forced to to enact some gruesome porn film um and the way that is i mean that is possibly one of the most disturbing sequences in kubrick's filmography which is saying you something. know it's funny you say that and first i'll note we also when you were asking where do we get or what do we get he also comes close to contracting a serious disease from one of those encounters, exactly. right? So there are, yeah. there are consequences potentially to all of these scenarios that we do see play out or almost play out. But it's funny you bring up the orgy sequence itself because I suppose one of the things that shocked me the most on this rewatch was just how not shocking it seemed, how positively quaint it seemed and not really revealing even at all, sorted, sure, a little bit, Kinky, absolutely, but the strategically placed people blocking the frame just so to make sure that he was getting whatever rating he needed to get. I understand all of those choices, but I think that's another one of those elements when you reflect back on 
what your perception of the movie was based on some of the hype around it or the discussion and the tabloid stuff was we were going to see something that was truly going to shock us, that was going to be Caligula-like in some ways. And it it doesn't feel that way. Well, I don't know what sort of parties you're going to, Adam, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's hard to say because you know what's coming. You do. Um, and the staging of those sequences are what are most innerving. You you said it. The, the onlookers are what are, is really troubling about it because everyone else is so still. Yes. And everything is so drained of any sort of emotion. And you mentioned how the masks allow them to, to be their true selves. I also think of almost the opposite where sure you could say well they're wearing masks cuz they're ashamed mm-hmm. but there there's a more interesting way to think about that and that's it shows you how impersonal all of these acts yes. are there is yes. no intimacy no. there's no connection they're they're just physical forms yes. banging against each other right. and then that's sort of you know it's it's again we're following the trajectory from the opening of the film at the cocktail party down where you're getting further away from the two people who know each other they may be sleepwalking through this marriage mm-hmm. but they know and care for each other uh, there's a connection there to more the, the acts become more and more disconnected from any sort of relationship yes. when we finally get to that party yeah and it's funny thinking about how entitled Dr. Bill really is. He's not on the level of Victor Ziegler or the people who are at this party in some of we the things that Ziegler they're responsible for. I mean, I love Sidney Pollack. I definitely want to talk about him. But the way that he comes to the party at all, even though he was warned by Todd Fields, Nick Nightingale, the fact that he pulls up in a taxi cab, right? And that ultimately is part of his undoing. Yes. I was definitely thinking about it this time without knowing that was going to come back into play later. Mm-hmm. I was just like, really, who do you think these people are going to this party and you're rolling up? Of course, they're going to be suspicious of you. I love even the way we get the two guys standing out there looking at him the whole way the yeah. taxi is pulling up like, who's this guy? What does he think he's doing? And then when he walks into the party, I mean... <laughs> Josh, I don't He's go not to. Worried. I, sadly, I, I don't get to have any fun like this. We don't go to parties like this. But if I did, I guarantee you that when I walk into the room and I see like eight naked women in a circle and a guy in red in the middle with a mask and a bunch of people in a formation almost, a tight formation, everyone has their place. You join the group. I'm either going to find yeah. a spot that looks like I belong or I'm going to hightail it right, the other exactly. way. What I'm not going to do is just kind of saunter over to the corner and just be <laughs> obviously the person who does not fit here, the misfit. And yet he still feels like I belong. I do like – I should belong. Yeah. I like your reading of it that it's not just a, a dumb mistake, but it's a privileged no, I think thing that's on what it his is. part. He thinks yeah. like I've been scorned and this now is what I totally, deserve. Yeah. Totally. And <laughs> talking about the style a little bit more, I do want to point out that – it's not unusual to see some great steady cam shots in yeah, Kubrick. That's part of the dreaminess here for sure. And everything else. But you're right. The dreaminess here. And I love that in all of these films we could point to and we see it in The Shining. As I said, 2001. In each case, he uses it a little bit differently. It has a different effect. It gives us a different feeling psychologically as we watch it in here. It's completely that dream sense. It almost with the lights twinkling, the Christmas lights, but also the white lights, the whitish yellow lights that we see dominating the frames at Ziegler's party as they walk so slowly with that steady cam, and they talk throughout the whole film so slowly. It almost does induce hypnosis. It's a very trance-like kind of feel. And that sets up everything we talked about with the rest of the film in terms of this kind of dreamlike state that Bill is experiencing. I got a bunch of other random little points we could get to. What else do you want to talk about? Yeah, you want to talk about Pollock? Yeah, let's talk about Pollock because I had forgotten until reading up on it just for this review that Harvey Keitel 
film. I'd forgotten that as well. Most of, I think, had film principal photography for that part of Ziegler. Um, and then for whatever reason, Kubrick decided to use Pollock. And yeah. Jennifer I, Jason Lee is Marion. Yeah, too, that's right. Yeah. Was yeah. yeah. I, you know, I just, I'm sure Keitel would be capable of it, but just even knowing Keitel's filmography, there is a volatility to him that. I don't think would have helped this role because no. what you no. need is what Pollock brings yes. is that this is the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> He's innocuous, um, you know, maybe a little smarmy about his richness, but look at his house. How, how could he not be, you right, know? Right. And then during his party, when Cruz gets called up to him with the naked woman who is overdosed while they're having sex, you're all of a sudden you're like, wait, yes. this is Sidney Pollock. Yeah. And the trick is that, when he comes back an hour and a half later in the film for their another great conversation scene at playing pool, when he's mm-hmm. playing pool back at his house, you still kind of feel, you still kind of trust Pollock. You're you know like, what? I, I've seen what you've done and I'm yeah. pretty sure now that that girl I saw earlier, you've had murdered, uh-huh. but I kind of believe you. Like you're you know kind what? of making sense, Ziegler. I'm on exactly the same plane as you, Josh, because I love Pollock in this role. You nailed it as far as not wanting that kind of volatility. I was thinking about the famous quote about the banality of evil. Yes. That's what we get oh with Sidney Pollock. And yes. it's so effective here because there is nothing truly evil in his performance. And he's a character, it becomes clear, who's not just accepting of this moral universe that he's not only a part of, but he's helped create. Sure. It's not that he's just accepting yeah. of it. He's comfortable with it. That's that's the world he wants to live in. He's going to make the world that he wants. And I'm with you that that moment and I I just think this is one of the, I suppose, beautiful mysteries of the film that we're never really going to know what transpired. Did they send Nick Nightingale home? Did the model or the former Miss New York or whatever die of an overdose? The movie suggests certainly we saw the first one. That could be the case. There's enough evidence. There's enough Mm -hmm. to latch on to if you want to see it that way. There's certainly enough to latch on to if you want to go the bigger conspiracy theory route and go, of course, he's lying. He's just trying to get Bill to get off the case, if you will. But for me, when I watch Pollock's performance and when I watch that scene where he says, "Okay, I'm done with the games. I'm going to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. Okay, Bill, let's 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 cut the bullshit. All right. You've been way out of your depth for the last 24 hours. You want to know what kind of a charade? I'll tell you exactly what kind. That whole play-acted, take-me, phony sacrifice that you've been jerking yourself off with had absolutely nothing to do with her real death. Nothing happened to her after you left that party that hadn't happened to her before. She got her brains period. When they took her home, she was, she was just fine. And the rest of it is right there in the paper. She was a junkie. She OD'd. There was nothing suspicious. Her door was locked from the inside. The police are happy. End of the story. It may not be the truth Bill wants to hear because he wants to believe the larger conspiracy. It may not be what we want to believe either because we're more willing to accept a more misanthropic worldview. But in that moment, I believe Pollock. Yeah. I actually really do believe that that might be as simple as it is. I, I know. It's, and, it, and it makes you just leave that scene feeling sleazy. You yeah. Know? And, and also totally understanding Bill's predicament. All right. I think there's one major misstep in the movie. Can you guess what it is? You're not going to say Alan Cumming, are you? Oh, no. Because <laughs> no. that's a fun performance. It is another a fun character performance. coming on. It, and that's why it to works. Bill in the scene. That's because it's, it's yeah. sexualizing, obviously, in a different way for a variety of reasons. The other sequences. Oh, are you going to go back to Lily Sobieski? No. No? Um, the Japanese men? We're not going to talk about 
that whole charade? No, I don't. Okay. I mean, I, well, then I'm I, think that's in, I think that's in keeping with the, the, the depravity is. that You're we right. are gradually immersing ourselves in. I think it's the fantasy, the black and white fantasy sequences ah. that Bill has involving Alice and the naval officer. I had forgotten about those. And the first time it occurs, my, my feeling was just, we don't need this. Like, we, maybe it's because I felt per- Cruz's performance was so strong that, like, I was getting what he was what he was just chewing over in his mind from everything else the camera was giving us, the angles you talked about in Cruz's performance. And then we keep returning to it. And it's that I totally might be the understand only, it, Yeah, that might be the only thing we disagree on because we could quibble. What do you with, think it adds? I guess well, we could quibble with how it's shot and whether or not it could have been handled a different way. I feel like not only is there something going on with the frame rate, but it's mostly black and white right. almost yeah, as I it remember is. it, which I think is a nice contrast to the Christmas light world that, sure. we're, that we're talking about. But for me, I think I'll just say on one personal level, as someone who has been very jealous before, it's absolutely easy for me to sit in Tom Cruise's place and not just imagine what he's imagining, but see it very viscerally and raw. What you in your mind are imagining actually played out the rawness of it the realness of it the actual acts themselves the fact that he kept coming back to it and every time they came back they weren't just doing the same thing they were doing before this is this elongated yeah sexual sequence for me it completely added to that state of despair that he was feeling yeah okay i, th- I just think your imagination is always going to be worse and having her describe the potential to him uh, is almost more of a knife turn hmm. in that in that monologue sequence than than literalizing us for us later, and I think it kind of undercuts you know what she had already done in that sequence. But yeah, that that was really my only sort of reservation I had on this rewatch. I've yeah. got to say, the one really minor thing I wanted to point out, and I could be completely crazy, but you notice how if we're going to go with the theory that nothing really happens by accident in a Kubrick film, when he does walk into the party and he just kind of goes over to the corner and the two people up on the balcony, whoever they are, the two people who are looking down yeah. on this thing, they turn their heads slowly. and they turn their heads in unison slowly at an angle and see him. And he, of course, looks back and he actually kind of acknowledges them, which that's the point where I would have been running. But again, <laughs> he feels like he's entitled to stay there. No, he's, he's like, I've, I've been noted as an honored guest. Right. That's exactly what it seems like when he goes back to the house and he's standing at the gate before mm-hmm. the two people come out with the letter. He looks up at the surveillance camera, exact same angle as he looked up at those two people and the surveillance yeah, camera turns just as slowly, turns just as slowly <laughs> and at the exact same angle and looks down on him. And it's. So creepy in that moment mm-hmm. because you really are brought back to that exact moment exactly. when they were looking down yeah, at him just with that camera move. That, a that little is camera it. move. <laughs> is everything – it's daytime. It's empty. Everything seems safer, I yes. guess, or, or again, innocuous. And then that camera movement brings the whole night back to yeah. force. Yeah. Now, maybe this is a movie where we shouldn't get too much into the actual logic of it and the plot and what unanswered questions are there. But the one I slacked you earlier today that I'll just throw out because it's the only true – kind of loose part of the Mm -hmm. plot. I'm willing to go along with all of this as crazy as it might be. But what I don't understand is that at the party, he is almost instantly recognized by the woman with the mask on, who we find out later is the same woman, right, that he treated 
at Sidney Pollock's house. It's yeah, Mandy. Mandy, played by Julianne Davis. How does she know that it's him, though? We know that they might recognize that it's him. He walks in without a mask on. They probably have surveillance cameras in the in the hall that he walks into and their radars are up about him as we hear as Ziegler tells him because he showed up in a taxi and all those things. So I understand that they might know that he doesn't belong and even who it really is. Right. But how does she know? Yeah. I, what I responded to you, I'll just throw out possibly, and I don't know the timing works for this, but in the time that they, the women separate and they're pairing off with the men. She may have overheard maybe some sort of reference to who he was because they had searched it. We learned later they had searched his coat and mm-hmm. found his ID at that point. So that's, I mean, that's, that's the really only the only explanation. Yeah, because I don't think the they're, give us. I don't think they're making eye contact and she would have recognition from seeing him before works because she was pretty much passed out when he met her at Ziegler's house. Yes. She does wake up at one moment. I don't right. know if that would be enough. So it's a little bit of a loose. It thread. is. It also occurred to me, though, that maybe. Maybe it's possible that she doesn't really know it's him, that she's not repaying him because it's Dr. Harford who once helped her. We don't necessarily know that from their dialogue. It might be just that she recognizes, like everyone else, that he doesn't belong there. Right. But I don't know that she would offer to redeem him, which were implied. Again, maybe if it's just all part of the theatrics, that doesn't really mean anything. And that's why I certainly watch it as if she must know it's him. Yeah. I think we're supposed to think she does know it's him. Uh, So we should at least touch very briefly on the music and the way it, the role it plays. Again, music, crucial element in Kubrick's films to that party sequence. We don't get it, if I'm remembering correctly, and this is Georg Ligeti's piano piece with that plinking Mm -hmm. accusatory note. I don't think we get it until he's called back into the main room and walks in with the entire party lined up, looking at him, waiting for him. And then also we get that high plinking note and i gotta say i i I totally understand if some people watch this and call it camp and think that by the time this party sequence occurs it's so over the top they can't get on board but for me that note is where it's like oh shit yes (laughs) any sort of like laughing about any of this just kind of gets cut short (laughs) because it's like the game is up you are screwed and i find what happens afterwards just absolutely terrifying Eyes Wide Shut is available to rent on demand on most platforms. There's actually a house in the country that has private screenings occasionally. Just make sure you know that second password. Good luck. If you've seen Eyes Wide Shut and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Massacre Theaters next. Plus, if you've spent the last six years wondering what Adam's top five Kubrick scenes Everybody. are, he missed that 2013 show where Michael Phillips and I shared our picks. This is your lucky day. Adam fills in those blanks and we'll share some Kubrick related feedback when we come back. Stay with us. Maybe did a bad, bad thing. 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 Here, love someone so much you thought your little heart was going to break into. I didn't think so. You ever try with all your heart and soul to get your lover back to you? I want to hope so. You ever pray with all your heart and soul just to walk to walk away? Yeah. Maybe it's a bad, bad thing. Maybe it's a bad, bad thing. Maybe it's a bad, bad thing. Over the banister leans a face tenderly sweet. And, and... Beguiling 
Judy Garland with Tom Drake in 1944's Meet Me in St. Louis. You're listening to Film Spotting. Meet Me in St. Louis was part of our Vincent Minnelli Marathon last year. That scene, a real standout for both of us. I think I might have had it as my favorite Minnelli moment of the marathon. Will it be my favorite Judy Garland moment? Kind of has to be. It probably will be. We are going to share that top five. Michael Phillips from the Tribune going to join us with Judy coming out, the biopic starring Renee Zellweger as Garland. We're not going to be able to see that before that movie opens or upon its release. We'll have to try to catch up with it later. But we thought, why not just look back? Ed Garland, maybe do some homework, do basically a mini Garland marathon and have some tie-in content where we share our favorite Judy Garland moments. It's really the content all the kids are asking for these oh, days. Yeah. I think they are. And of actually, course, I mean, I think... your kids and Sam's kids and one of my kids, but nobody else. Well, no, we're, I think we're <laughs> going to be ahead of the curve on this. People uh-huh. are going to be interested. They'll, they'll see Judy. And they'll learn some things they never knew, be interested in the older films, and we'll have this top five right there for them. Now. Blockbuster, Adam. Blockbuster. Exactly. Just like (laughs) the Kubrick top five, this might be one where I come up lame and can't talk the day of recording, and I'll just let you and Michael do all the work, because we know Michael's the classic Hollywood cinema guru. He's got it down. Right. He's seen probably every Garland film that's been made, certainly all the major ones. We'll do no homework. We'll come in with a couple scraps of paper with a few things written down. (laughs) Meanwhile, you've been watching like three Garland films a day doing homework. Not quite that many, but I've been doing a little marathon. I've seen none since we scheduled this topic a month ago, so I've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, and there's you've got a lot of good ones to pick pick from. Yeah. I mean, she's made a lot of good stuff. We'll get into this in the show, but my perception of her from just seeing her in The Wizard of Oz when I was a kid yeah. and have seen nothing else for many, many years was so off my perception mm. of Judy Garland. So well, there can't you wait to do this. That is what should hook you if you are a neophyte like I am for the most part when it comes to Judy Garland. Maybe that gives you a reason to listen to our show. Again, top five Judy Garland scenes or moments coming up next week with Michael Phillips. If you have a favorite Garland pick, email it to us, feedback at filmspotting.net, or leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You could also always send us an MP3 file via email. If you do send some audio feedback, You might have to sing it, though. Speaking of our marathons, our last one focused on the work of Marlena Dietrich and Joseph von Sternberg, their collaboration. And we did just get an email from one of our longtime listeners, Aaron Teachman in D.C., with a recommendation to help give us and all of our listeners a little bit more background on Marlena Dietrich. I am woefully, woefully behind on all things film spotting in the recent marathon, which is especially frustrating for me as a former student of German cultural studies with an emphasis on film and medieval studies and irony, but I digress. (laughs) I will catch up soon, but I definitely wanted to mention a film while the Dietrich von Sternberg marathon is still fresh in everyone's minds. Apologies if you guys do mention this film during the marathon, but Maximilian Schell made a stunning documentary about Marlena Dietrich in 1984 simply called Marlena. It's available on Prime. Schell was her co-star in Judgment at Nuremberg, and they were friends for many years. The German-speaking community in Hollywood was quite small. By the time Shell made Marlena, Dietrich had almost completely withdrawn from the world, rarely even leaving her Paris apartment, terribly fearful that people seeing her as an old woman would tarnish the seductive image people continued to hold of her long after she stopped working which she believed was precisely because she stopped appearing in movies. Shell does a masterful job bringing Dietrich and her place in film history to life, which he has to do quite obliquely.
weekly because she refused to be recorded on camera, even for him, let alone anyone else. I think her last screen work was with David Bowie in 1978's Just a Gigolo, and even that was kind of a miracle, as I recall. Marlena is a brilliant film, probably as a result of the obstructions that Dietrich herself constructed. At any rate, a worthy coda to any examination of Dietrich's work. Sounds fascinating. I'd love to check it out. Thank you so much, Aaron, for that note. And if you want to hit two brilliant birds with one stone, two marathon birds with one stone, Josh, anyway, it occurs to me that you could watch Judgment at Nuremberg and see both Marlene Dietrich and Judy Garland. I know. It's on my list. Have not gotten to it yet. I might have to leave that one for you. Okay. A little bit more feedback here. This from the corrections department. We haven't had... Uh-oh. Any corrections, at least worth pointing out, in a very long time, and I made two mistakes, two mistakes on last week's show. This is the corrections segment of the show, or what I like to call Josh and Sam don't pay attention to what Adam says. <laughs> well, you realize two any chances mis- to be corrected. Any mistake Does anyone say anything? you make, if I miss it and don't correct it, it becomes my mistake as well. Uh-huh. So just stop saying stupid things. <laughs> Fair enough. We heard from Kim, very racy Zuckert, who says, Jean Seberg wasn't French. Not only not French, but Adam, she was from Iowa. I was disappointed at you not knowing one of your fellow prominent Iowans. It's true. Ouch. On our last show, I was talking about the new movie Seberg. Not a totally stupid mistake. I think a lot of people perceive her to be French. They think about her in Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, mm-hmm. the fact that she did live in France over half her life, or at least half her life, and started numerous French films. So I did have that in my head, but it's true that I, at one time, knew she was from Iowa. She's not, this may not surprise you, one of those famous actors or celebrities that people talk about a lot being from Iowa, maybe a little bit more of a fringe star, if you will, or a little bit forgotten. But born, I looked this up and it reminded me, born in the town of Marshalltown, which happens to be the town where, when I turned 16, I was desperate to get my driver's license. My mom got me out of chemistry class, picked me up at school, drove me to Marshalltown, which was the closest DMV, so I could pick up my license. Me and Gene Seberg. You tell me that story and you expect me to say riveted throughout this entire show and catch <laughs> everything you say. Right. I mean, this is a challenge. Yeah, I get it. Andrew in Sydney, Australia, also pointed out that I was incorrect regarding Falstaff. In Henry V, I was talking about our fall movie preview again, The King Mm -hmm. coming out. We see Joel Edgerton playing Falstaff in Henry V. Brian Blessed does not play Falstaff. It's Robbie Coltrane who plays Falstaff. It's true. Brian Blessed is in Henry V. He just happens to be Exeter in that film. He's probably played Falstaff 27 times on the stage. I'm just guessing. Nevertheless, not only that, but I think I incorrectly called him Brian Blessed, which is how it's spelled. They probably say it, Brian Blessed. So there you go. I'm correcting yet another mistake I made on that show. And this one, thank you, everyone who wrote in Film Spotting Regrets the Airs. Movie passes, Josh. We have some to give away, sometimes run of engagement, sometimes advanced screenings. Filmspotting.net slash events is where you go. And I know you and your wife, Debbie, she's probably entered already 27 times to get those passes to a Wednesday, September 18th screening of Downton Abbey. Oh yeah, movie. we're gonna we're gonna rig things so we can get to this. No, yep. the, the Downton Abbey. Uh, I don't know. The fire is kind of gone. It's been a really? while. Yeah, it's been a while. I don't mm. know. I'm sure we'll see it. Might have to wait at home. But if listeners are more passionate about it, they can see it for free on us. They, they can, can enter at least. Yeah, AMC River East here in Chicago on the 18th. If you would like to enter and see that movie for free before it comes out, again, filmspotting.net/events. That's also where you can get information about Josh hitting the road 
book tour, doing some talks. You want to give those dates again? Yeah, there's two that will still be coming up by the time this show airs. September 26th, I'll be at the Apprentice Gathering that's put on by Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. And then October 3, I'll be speaking at Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey. So both of those variations on book talks, uh, workshops, going through, say, Toy Story as a prayer of confession, all drawn from my book, Movies Are Prayers. So looking forward to those and hope to see a few film spotting listeners who might be near Wichita, Kansas yeah. or Princeton. Anyone can come and join us. Earlier this week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they aired part one of their murder games pairing. It has them considering the new horror comedy Ready or Not through the lens of a movie I loved back in 1985, Clue. You can get new episodes of The Next Picture Show every Tuesday at midnight. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or visit nextpictureshow.net. At filmspotting.net is where you can find the current film spotting poll. We are currently looking ahead to James Gray's Ad Astra. It has Brad Pitt on a rescue mission that takes him across the solar system. We thought it was a little bit of a surprise to see James Gray tackling a sci-fi movie, though maybe not quite as surprising as getting Claire Denis' space movie earlier this year, High Life, with Robert Pattinson and Juliette Binoche. So we're asking you, which acclaimed director's unlikely space movie would you most want to see? We shared this last week on the show. There's still time to vote. Josh, those choices are. Sophia Coppola, Barry Jenkins, Wong Kar Wai, Spike Lee, Mike Lee, Lynn Ramsey, or Kelly Riker. So right now, Wong Kar Wai in the lead. What do you think about that? Um, as, as we discussed with 2046, he's kind of delved kind of. into this territory. So I'm not surprised given how much love film spotting listeners have for him, but Maybe not maybe not the most exciting choice from my perspective. Now, we did get this feedback that we're going to share just for you, Josh. Jared Sorensen, a story in New York, said, I don't know about sci-fi, but I'd love to see a Spike Lee joint that delves into the fantasy genre. Call it She's Got a Hobbit. Adam, that's terrible. <laughs> it's Jared. That's terrible. I, I shared that with Sam and blame him. He wrote back no. to me. You have to share that on no. air. You have to share that on air and surprise Josh just so he has an embolism. I don't on like air. it. I it, don't it, like it. It almost happened. Jared. She's got a hobbit. Stop. Come on. Stop. <laughs> Vote now in that poll at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Jared, you, you've totally thrown me off. I can barely think. I, let's just move on to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. And you are my wife's lover? No. And what are you doing here? I know you. You're the guy from the gym. I'm not here representing our bodies. Oh, yes. I know very well what you represent. You represent the idiocy of today. I don't represent that either. Oh, yeah. You're the guy at the gym when I ask about that moronic woman. She's not a moron. You're in league with that moronic woman. You're part of a league of morons. No. 
That was John Malkovich, of course it was, and Richard Jenkins in 2008's Burn After Reading, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. The Massacre was part of a show where we had a 9 from 99 review of being John Malkovich. We also had our concluding film in our Marlena Dietrich Joseph von Sternberg Marathon, 1934's The Scarlet Empress. So why Burn After Reading? Well, it seems pretty obvious, but maybe listeners had a few extra ideas as well. This is Chris Massa from Pittsburgh. The obvious tie-in is that John Malkovich stars in being John Malkovich, which was discussed on the show. What's more, he actually is John Malkovich. So he's sort of an expert on being John Malkovich, I guess. So maybe that counts as two tie-ins? No, not really, but nice try, Chris. Francis in Bethesda, Maryland says the obvious connection is Malkovich, of course, but I would suggest a better connection. The Coen brothers are among the most creative and interesting director-writer pairs, and Jones-Kaufman are similarly interestingly creative. From the white Russian-fueled creativity of Lebowski to the wait-what moments of adaptation, when you sit down to watch a movie from these two pairs, you don't know what you're going to get. I like it, Francis. Here's Judah Egge? Egge? Egg? Sure. One of those. Yes. In Austin, Texas. Not only is Malkovich a key player in both Burn and being John Malkovich, he faces similar issues of dealing with in-over-their-heads members of the League of Morons seeking to control and extort him for their own gains. Scott in Corvallis, Oregon, wrote in with this. And this is going to be controversial, Josh. Get ready. Okay? okay. Is it no puns? Pun? No, there's no puns. Please, only one per show. Sneaky connection my is contract. that Burn After Reading would have been a better movie with Catherine Keener in the Tilda Swinton role. Nobody's ever said anything would be better with Tilda Swinton in it, but we'll go on, Scott. Probably the two finalists for all-time queen of indies. For me, Swinton's extreme coldness makes it less believable that she ever would have hooked up with the Malkovich or Clooney characters. Our producer, Sam, does note this is sacrilege. And I thought it was sacrilege, too, because I'll generally go with the rule that Tilda Swinton should be in everything Mm -hmm. and maybe play every character. But Sam did ask me after our review of Malkovich or maybe... When he was editing the show, he asked me if I had looked at Catherine Keener's filmography recently. Like, do I remember the run she had? And I said, honestly, not really. I'm kind of blanking on just about everything. Go to IMDb and look at the list. There's a 10-year span there where all she did was make one great film after another, and she was great in all of them. So maybe not quite the sacrilege I thought it was at first. I'm not even going to wade into these controversial waters. Okay. We also heard from Matt Irwin in Columbus, Ohio, who points out rightfully that almost every character in both Burn After Reading and Being John Malkovich is entirely unsympathetic. Very true. One more here from Rory Dunn in Vancouver, British Columbia. I have to say Josh's pronunciation was truly dripping with Malkovich's insufferable impatience. Yeah. Well, Adam can attest. I was going to say, you were playing yourself. (laughs) I'm very capable of insufferable impatience. (laughs) Well, with all of that, we reach into the brimming film spotting hat, the actually brimming film spotting hat, the most entered massacre theater we've had in a long time. And I don't know if it's just because there are that many fans out there of this film. People love it. That we gave it away with the hard bodies gym reference and they Googled it, (laughs) that your league sounded just like John Malkovich, whatever it was, lots of entries. Josh, reach in, pick out this week's winner. The winner is Tom Schutzer from Westfield, New Jersey. Congratulations, Tom. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Now, you understand the scene. You're not sure if you still love Keith, but you're offering yourself to him in order to save the planet. Look at Jeff, right up here. Now, we're starting here. Uh-huh. And up, okay. and roll set. And here we go from a ton of entries right back down to probably a handful instead of a hatful. Yeah, an obscure scene, let's say, in yes. a cult movie? Would you a little call bit this of a cult, cult movie. movie? Yeah, and 
It's one, though, if you've seen it multiple times like I have, I think I would have gotten it. I think the last word. Yeah, that's it. Is enough to give it away if you are familiar with this movie. And if you're a fan of this movie, and I don't know many people who aren't fans of this movie, if they've seen it, those are all the clues you're going to get, though it does tie in with a major topic on this week's show. I suppose there's your final hint. Now, we do want to say for people who come to Massacre Theater with some sense of integrity, I don't know why you would, cinematic integrity, we're totally doctoring these screenplay lines little some language issues. yeah we're gonna make it radio slash family friendly here we're eliminating some of the swearing and maybe throwing in a couple new words as well so don't hold it against us we think you'll still be able to get the scene if you're familiar with it josh you started off are you ready all right and action you know what we should do we should get some effing money out of them huh what makes you think she's got any you fooling me her husband, Mr. Evan Big Joker, owns an effing guinea restaurant, all right? Look at the car she drives. Look at her effing fingernails. Big, red, sculpted, glossy nails. She got plenty of money. That's rich girl stuff. Yeah, maybe. You think she's some kind of hot stuff, don't you? She just looks... What? Clean. <laughs> and seen. I like how you played a totally different character what? for the last line. Yeah, I did. It was perfect. Well, I think if you study the scene closely and do a beat analysis, as I did, he does make a turn there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wasn't quite that drastic, but I get you. It wasn't. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 23rd. Make sure you get those entries in clean. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to some of our new donors this week. And of course, to all of our regular monthly donors, whether it's $2, $5, or $10 a month, you really do keep us doing what we're doing. Adam in Chicago wrote in, said, I'm a huge fan and have been meaning to donate for a while. You have introduced me to many great movies, and I especially look forward to checking out the Golden Brick candidates each year. And Adam just recently caught up with Starfish on your recommendation, Josh, a movie that is listed currently as a contender over at our Bricks page at filmspotting.net. You can find that by clicking on lists at the top of the page. Adam was nice enough to point out that I'd apparently embedded the wrong trailer for Starfish. I hope I didn't send too many people astray. That has been corrected. We also got a donation from a very longtime listener, as you'll hear, Phil Talon. Adam and Sam and Josh, I've been with you guys for a while. I'm pretty sure that I caught Cinecast at about episode six, fresh off the press. Did you really review Be Cool in those early days or did I dream that? Episode one. Podcasting was new and fresh. Sam's last name was Hallgren. You gave listeners DVDs that you bought yourself. They were wild times. Way back then I was headed into PhD and what I knew would be a run of self-imposed poverty. So the first time you asked for cash, I sent $20 knowing that it was the last gift in a good while. I listened through PhD. PhD, job search, kids, and more kids. I watched the Cinecast video with Adam in his dad's suit and Sam swiveling in the chair. (laughs) I gasped when Sam left. I learned to love Maddie and Josh. This support is now long overdue. I'm now a poor professor with four kids, but I owe you for all the good listens. Keep it up. We will do that, Phil, as long as you keep listening. Thanks so much to Phil and Adam and everyone who supports the show. Before we get into our favorite Stanley Kubrick scenes, we want to share a little bit of feedback about It Chapter 2, the last movie we reviewed and not favorably here on the show. Ben Haworth writes in, and he has some perspective as someone who has read It 
Josh, and he does say this during his comments, but we're going to note it here again in capital letters. Book spoilers. If you have not read it and at some point you want to, maybe fast forward or stop listening for 30 seconds or so. Here's Ben. Hey, film audience. This is Ben Hollis from Houston, Texas, calling in with some feedback on your review of It Chapter 2. Uh, I also really didn't like this film, but as a fan of the book, I thought I'd add a little more context why I think it's such a failure. In that, in particular, I think the ending is just terrible. Um, spoiler alert for the book, uh, Derry gets destroyed. The entire town is destroyed in a giant storm somewhat caused by the destruction of It. And the thing about the book is it's a man who is going through a drug problem realizing he's basically becoming his father. He realizing that his past was terrible, that the place that used to feel idyllic to him was really sinister and awful at his heart. And it's a very powerful story in that sense and a very messy story, but a very interesting story. And I think they just bungle it because the ending is very nostalgic. It's trying to go for this, you know, remember the Goonies and how the, they save the town and the Goonies thing. In his view, Derry is all evil. It is a problem and it's causing a lot of the evil, but you don't kill the clown and then save the town. The town is too decayed. It's too dead. And it's been completely rotted at its core. Um, that's why the, the gay murder scene is in the book. And it's still problematic, but it's a lot better in that it's part of a whole idea that all the adults are terrible, that anybody who stays in Derry after a long time gets infected by this curse of this conservative values place that is rotting and can't advance and it's just decaying and dying. And I think to end with like, we killed the clown and everything's great. And this kind of can go back to being what it wants. And we never be gay bashing again. And there'll never be an abusive dad again. It just completely utterly bungled it. I think it's just terrible. So I just wanted to add that little bit of context for you guys. Uh, it was great, great review. I really appreciate it. And I'm totally on board. Uh, I was really hoping that this film would get, a little bit deeper. We had our scares. And let's do something really interesting. And it just went for more scares. And it just got more and more boring as the film went along. So thank you, guys. Well, thank you, Ben, for that perspective. It definitely sounds like a more interesting film had they maybe gone down that path, Josh. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. And it's interesting. I've been listening to a couple of other shows that have talked about It Chapter 2. And I think it was the Slate Spoiler special where they get into some differences from the book. Another one that makes sense when we realize how kind of rammed in this is to the movie involves Mike, who's played as an adult by Isaiah Mustafa. And we see what his, you talked about shame being a potential mm -hmm. theme there and his, they don't spend a lot of time on it, but it has to do with him as a kid yeah. seeing his parents, his parents die in an apartment fire because they were smoking crack always struck an odd note to me, and I know the movie tries to tie it into like some of the racism that he experienced as yes. a kid, um, but it just seemed kind of like tone deaf well, to possibly. But I'll give you my read on that, though. Well, my just read real was, quick, just yeah. to say, like that isn't in the book at all. Apparently, well, okay. That 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 that's Mike interesting. in the book, Mike grows up in like a really stable home environment. Oh, okay. So they completely changed that. Completely but changed that. That said, I was very aware that there's a scene earlier in it, chapter two, where he's having his shame showdown with. Pennywise and the newspaper that has the article about that event describes it as two crackheads dying right. in a fire. When we see that newspaper later in the film, it doesn't say that. It just says like two people die in fire. So that's his shame. His shame is that's the perception 
the perception of his so parents. It's now, that. whether or not it's actual reality or not, I don't know. But, but remember, like Pennywise is kind of feeding yes, him that. He's, he's okay. preying on the perception yeah, of Mike yeah. and his family, probably because they're the only black family in right, town. Right, right. So again, it's this terrible place that Derry is. That's the people whispering about yeah. about him when he's a little boy. So and I don't I, know if they really were. Or again, that's just part of what he had to deal with growing and I up. I don't remember how that is portrayed because it is an element in the first film too. Yeah. So, but I'm not right. quite sure exactly how they portray it there. But it, either way, it's still, even if that's the case, it still mm-hmm. strikes me as kind of an odd, for all the things that they were faithful to apparently, and then the thing, the choices they made to change things just seem right. to be odd in this case. Let's move on to our top five Kubrick scenes. We're going to close out this show mostly devoted to Stanley Kubrick and his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, by looking back on our September 2013 show where we did a Sacred Cow review of 2001. It was episode 459, and we did share our top five Kubrick scenes. As we noted at the beginning of the show, I lost my voice, I think the day of recording, and didn't actually get to share mine. So rather than replay it, we thought we would just kind of look back on your picks. I could share my picks really quickly and then get to some of the responses we got to that top five. So wrap up the Kubrick show with a nice little bookend here, looking back on some of everyone's favorite Stanley Kubrick scenes. Josh, what were your top five? All right. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. I think one or two might show up on your list as well. So we can maybe spend some more time on them there. But at five, I had Lord Bullingdon's Satisfaction. That's the final duel from Barry Lyndon. Number four was the Tour of the Trenches in Paths of Glory. At number three, I went with the Bloody Elevators in The Shining. Number two, as I mentioned earlier, Nicole Kidman's confession from Eyes Wide Shut. But my number one Stanley Kubrick scene is Hal Reading Lips in mm. 2001, A Space Odyssey. You want me to run through Michael yeah, Phillips here real quick? Yeah, go with Michael's as well. All right. At number five, he went with a scene from The Killing, the robbery planning sequence. Number four, he had Peter Sellers on the phone with Dimitri from Dr. Strangelove. Number three, he had Kirk Douglas striding through the trenches in Paths of Glory. I think a different sequence than the one I talking about. I I think mine's at the beginning of the film. Okay. Uh, Number two, Peter Sellers and James Mason on the porch from Lolita. Kubrick, I still need to see. His number one, the Jupiter mission sequence from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Well, you guys did very well with that top five. And I did look back at my notes and I lamented right off the top that I wish we could redo this top five later. And certainly there are enough good scenes to choose from, even with the relatively few films that Kubrick made, that we could revisit and do perhaps less obvious scenes. But the more I thought about it, because we're always trying to come up with a very personal and kind of more idiosyncratic list. But as I was trying to talk myself into, for example, the end of the killing, which I love the final shot of the killing, not to mention the high sequence that Michael included, but I love that final shot. And even with that said, I had to ask myself at the end of the day, is it really better or more memorable than the ones I ultimately went with? And I decided Maybe not. My number five, actually the same as yours, Josh, Lord Bullingdon's Satisfaction. We got this note from Thomas Pashko in Winnipeg, who says, This scene is tense and dramatic, but filled with black comedy. I don't think Barry Lyndon gets enough credit for being as funny as it is. There are so many great scenes where characters partake in obviously dramatic acts, robbing someone at gunpoint, taking part in a secret gay love affair with a fellow soldier, but do so with such a strict deference to 18th century manners and social ritual, and the result is always very funny to me. This scene of the duel is the funniest, though. 
The stuffy moderator is explaining the rules, the terrified boy vomiting at the prospect of losing his life, and the moderator trying not to show his disgust and politely trying to appear as if he didn't notice always makes me laugh. Yeah, I think when I mentioned, I talked about the pigeons in the background too, and how they're just kind of going about their business, not really being bothered by these silly humans and their games. Yeah. My number four is Boot Camp slash Is That You, John Wayne from Full Metal Jacket. Probably was the first Kubrick film I watched in its entirety in 1987 as a junior high kid i'd probably seen the shining or at least lots of parts of it before that on tv but i think full metal jacket was the first one i ever watched and there are a lot of amazing credit sequences and openings in kubrick's film we touched on the great opening shot in eyes wide shut and you can talk about a clockwork orange and of course the shining but the full-on assault that is the beginning of boot camp from Full Metal Jacket is really something transitioning out of this sort of goofy, innocent scene of the new inductees getting their hair all shaved off. There's a country song playing. It's sort of patriotic, a little bit of Americana. It's about helping your country, and you kind of get a warm feeling about it. And then instantly we meet Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, played by Arlie Ermey. What's your excuse? Sir, excuse for what, sir? I'm asking the questions here, Private. Do you understand? Sir, yes, sir. Well, thank you very much. Can I be in charge for a while? Sir, yes, sir. Are you shook up? Are you nervous? Sir, I am, sir. Do I make you nervous? Sir. Sir, what? Are you about to call me an asshole? Sir, no, sir. How tall are you, Private? Sir, five foot nine, sir. Five foot nine. I didn't know they stacked that high. You trying to squeeze an inch in on me somewhere, huh? Sir, no, sir. Bulls. It looks to me like the best part of you ran down to crack your mama's ass and ended up as a brown stain on the mattress. I think you've been cheated. Where in hell are you from anyway, Private? The cold harshness of that barrack and his voice yelling at you, beating you down until you no longer have any sense of identity or individuality. And when Joker speaks, Matthew Modine, he says, is that you, John Wayne? Is this me? And that line, of course, immediately recalls kind of that Americana, this glorious image of this hero, John Wayne, and contrasting that with Hartman's demeanor and what the real military experience is really like. I love that opening. That's my number four. My number three, obvious, but had to do it. The big wheel, come play with us scene from The Shining. Got to talk about Kubrick and those steady cam shots, those tracking shots. That's probably my favorite from his body of work. And at number two, I went with one from Paths of Glory, but a different one. It's the faithful Hussar. And if I'm remembering the scene right, it's a female German prisoner actually played by Christian Kubrick became Kubrick's wife. She's singing in a crowded pub. And the whole thing, as I recall it, is sort of sexualized. They're much more interested in her revealing something physically and part of her body, obviously, versus her singing. And they're sort of egging her on like there's no way she could entertain this group of men. And then they stop and they actually listen. And it's not even that she has such a beautiful voice as she has a pretty voice and I think conviction. She's singing with emotion and there's a clarity of purpose. And they join in. Und eilte seinem Herzliebchen zu. Da ließ er all sein Hab und Gut und eilte seinem Herzliebchen zu. Ach, bitte, Mutter, bring ein Licht. Mein Liebchen stirbt, ich seh es nicht. And we then get these close-ups of all the men as some of them are moved to tears. Yeah, I was watching that again today when I saw your list and 
this scene ends very differently, but it did remind me of The Nightingale, where we see sure. Claire, the main character, being forced to sing before those British soldiers. And yeah, different tenor to that scene, but somewhat of a similar scenario. Yeah, and this is one where if you go back to your kind of thesis on Kubrick, it could be the closing argument this movie could be in terms of being ashamed to be part of the human race. And this is a sequence. I think in this whole film, we see the best and worst of humanity revealed. My number one, then, Stanley Kubrick scene the most obvious, but there's a reason why it's the most obvious. It's the from bone to satellite cut in 2001. And of course, you could look at the entire watering hole sequence, but this idea of this being evolution, we're going to advance from this dawn of man, but we're also going to become even more warlike and more territorial. And in celebration, they toss that bone up in the air and the slow motion shot as it falls, that match cut to space and the satellite. It's millions of years of evolution encapsulated in one cut. It's maybe the greatest pure cut in cinema history because of the use of the technique to convey that meaning Instantly, it's all right there. And it's my number six. Probably should have been on my list too, but I was trying to keep one per film and I just had to have Hal. So yeah. I went that direction. No, I totally understand. Let's get to a little bit of feedback then and hear some listener choices for favorite Kubrick scenes. Let's start with Dan from Pittsburgh. I loved this episode so much and I would love it if you guys made more like this. I really wish Adam could have been there from the beginning because it started to sound a little like this. <laughs> Michael, Kubrick just wants to play games with us all the time. Josh, I know, right? Humans are the worst. <laughs> I'm not complaining, just having some fun, but I would love to hear what Adam had to chime in on that conversation from the beginning of the episode. Yeah, so totally self-serving for me to choose that one. But yes, you and Michael have both a little bit more ambivalence, I suppose, when it comes to Kubrick, especially Michael, than I do. I'm kind of full-on adoration of the director. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm pretty full-on admiration, too. It's just a more interpretation difference, perhaps. Okay. But yeah, Michael can be a little critical. He can. James from Philadelphia wrote in, for me, it has to be the seduction slash gambling scene in Barry Lyndon. No dialogue, almost no action, but so, so much going on and so much expressed by the characters. I particularly love the look that Marie Melvin's priest slash chaperone gives when he realizes what is transpiring genius. Oh man, and the lighting in that one too. Thomas Pashko here from Winnipeg. Killer's Kiss, he picks. This is Kubrick's second feature. It's underseen, but it's a real gem. Shot independently on a low budget in the 50s. It has gorgeous black and white cinematography of New York that's very authentic and unusual for films of this period. It's a very short movie and is available as a bonus feature of the Criterion edition of The Killing. The scene is the film's climax, a battle to the death between two characters in a mannequin factory. Oh no, more mannequins. One character wields a fire axe, the other a poker. There's no real Kubrickian symbolism going on here. It's just simply the most inventive action set piece I've ever seen. Again, that was Thomas's number five pick. He had some great choices as well, but I love that we got in a Killer's Kiss reference. It's, I was going to say, the only Kubrick I haven't seen, Josh, but that's not true because I still haven't watched Spartacus either. Yeah, I'm missing Spartacus And I love too. Kirk Douglas, but I've never... I suppose felt like it was really worth my time, and I hope someone writes in and tells me how wrong I am. Let's see how I do with this name. Finn F. Feth or Faith in Mold, Norway. Molda? I, I, think you, I think you got 80% of that. Yeah, probably. I just don't know if which I'm 80%. Lucky. 
<laughs> number five, one of the reverse tracking shots in Paths of Glory. Number four, great pick, President Muffley on the phone with Party Secretary Kissoff and Dr. Strangelove. A wonderful simplex dialogue. Number three, the scene at the red pool table. There you go, and eyes wide shut. A scene sometimes misunderstood, but if you pay attention, you see that Ziggler tells you that you can never know what the movie is about and what the powerful think they can do. Number two, that last duel and Barry Lyndon. And number three, yes, the dismantling of Hal in 2001. Talk about intense. This is Seb hailing from Canada via Peru. My favorite Kubrick moments are two very completely different ones, cinematically, and yet they both have a huge impact, emotionally at least, within the context of the respective films. The first ones have a crescendo of sound, like a million swarming bees, leading up to the moments when the ape and the astronaut touch the monoliths in 2001. That monolith scares the hell out of me whenever I see it. Such a simple, perfect shape, so straight and smooth, standing ominously as an all-knowing representation of, of what? Good question. Knowledge, I would think, or at least the hunger for it. I guess that uncertainty makes it all the more frightful. What's going to happen when the imperfect beings make contact with such perfection? Is it a force that catapults humanity into the next era of civilization? I love how Kubrick inserts this mystery as a constant throughout the film. When it appears almost at the end of the film in front of an aged Dave Bowman, and then when it appears in the last scene of the film, right before Strauss blares majestically again, that lead-up gives me the shivers. How Kubrick managed to play with our nerves with such a simple image and five musical notes is really the magic of cinema. His other pick comes from Eyes Wide Shut, a scene we talked about quite a bit in our review earlier in the show. It's the bedroom sequence, the confession scene, that first one with Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. He says... That whole conversation scene was so different from the epic symbolism of 2001, where Kubrick is trying to show you how humanity evolves and leaps. In Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick wants to show you how a real-life couple can take a step backwards in their relationship. The only hint that they might solve the problem and get back to moving forward as a family comes in the very last line of the film, but it will take rebuilding a lot of trust. That is almost as monumental as the monolith on the moon. Brilliant how Kubrick could show us two completely different facets of our humanity in such radically and differently powerful ways. Peter from London has a few suggestions here in no particular order, he says. Alex's slow-motion attack on his droogs from A Clockwork Orange. Hal sabotaging the mission and killing Dave's co-pilot in 2001. The edit when the camera jump zooms into Hal's eye as the soundtrack goes silent, as frightening as any horror film moment. The sniper scene in Full Metal Jacket is another of Peter's picks. When Tom Cruise gets found out at the mansion party in Eyes Wide Shut, terrifying. I'm with you, Peter. And one more here, the red bathroom scene between Jack and the ghost of the former housekeeper in The Shining. Very good stuff. Finally, Aaron Fenn in La Habra, California writes in, Obviously, there are tons of scenes from Kubrick masterpieces from Full Metal Jacket, 2001, A Clockwork Orange, and The Shining that are constantly talked about. But what about some of his less talked about work? For me, Paths of Glory from 1957 is still one of his best, and there are so many brilliant scenes from this gem of a film about humanity and the morality of war. I wanted to suggest three scenes for possible options. So he has one of them that was on my list, the faithful Hazari says it gets a little dusty in the room every time I've seen this final moment of the film. So human and so honest. And one of the trench shots that might be yours or Michael's, a stunner of a single shot that only breaks when the sanity of a soldier does a stroll through the trenches. And I think that one's mine because that's where we're getting the tracking shot 
at first it's in front of the commanding officer coming through the trenches in a very authoritative mm-hmm. manner. And then after he encounters this soldier and kind of upbraids to him for being weak, the camera moves behind him for a tracking shot, which reduces his authority. Got it. And it's, it's just a beautiful switch. The other one hasn't come up yet. The execution just as hard to watch now as it probably was in 57 brilliant. We will post all of these at our website, filmspotting.net with links to the ones that we can find. Just click on lists at the top of the page. Josh, that is our show. Indeed it is. And if you want more beyond even that previous top five, well, you can find all sorts of reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005 at filmspotting.net, where you can also vote in the current film spotting poll. Which acclaimed director's unlikely space movie would you most want to see? To order film spotting t-shirts or other film spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in limited release here this weekend in Chicago, Give Me Liberty, a film set in Milwaukee, a medical transport driver, I do love this description, risks his job to shuttle a group of rowdy seniors and a Russian boxer to a funeral, dragging clients like Tracy, a young woman with ALS, along for the ride. I have relatives in Milwaukee. It's it's all like that. Yeah, every, that's, that's a normal Wednesday night, right, in Milwaukee. That certainly screams golden brick potential. We look forward to catching up with that. I also really want to see Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice, because I love documentaries about musicians. Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins is out. And Tigers Are Not Afraid, a dark fairy tale about a gang of five children trying to survive the violence of drug cartels. This also will probably land on our golden brick radar. Out in wide release, Josh, help me out with this one. Sam has done some clever work here. You can do a little bit of acting. You get Mm -hmm. to do the responses, okay? Okay. Out wide, the Goldfinch. The responses out of the Toronto Film Festival this week were? That's my interpretation of the dialogue. That's your interpretation? Improv. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. I mean, if I was the screenwriter, I'd be furious. This is so appropriate for a Kubrick show. I'm telling you. Let's see how you do with this Uh one. I'm very controlling. Hustlers. The response out of Toronto was? Yes. Strip club workers rip off their Wall Street clients. It stars J-Lo, Constance Wu, and Cardi B. Do I need another take or is that all right? No, I'll go with it. Okay. I mean, it's the end of the show. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> Next week, we are not going to talk about either of those films, though. We hope to catch up, I would say, at least with Hustlers in the coming weeks. We're instead going to share our top five Judy Garland moments with the great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. The Garland biopic Judy starring Renee Zellweger is out in limited release at the end of this month. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, which provided the recording space for this episode. Learn more at trnty.edu. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire 
Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.